From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Growing up, Dr. Martha Shenton was fascinated by people different from her. She wanted to know their experiences, their thoughts and feelings. As a young woman interested in the mind, she chose to pursue the study of psychology and schizophrenia. Now, Dr. Shenton's career has led her to researching imaging techniques of the brain to closely examine neurons and connections. She sits down to talk about her work and how early mentors influenced her research path. Dr. Martha Shenton is a professor of psychiatry at Brigham and Women's Hospital and the director of the Psychiatry Neuroimaging Lab. Dr. Shenton, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So um, you have dual appointments in psychiatry and radiology. Your primary appointment is in psychiatry. That's correct. And um, you, your research looks at schizophrenia and traumatic brain injury. Um, can you tell us how you started your research career and how you became interested in schizophrenia? Um, well, I think I was always interested in kind of abnormal psychology and, and people who looked different and sounded different. I was brought up in Concord, New Hampshire, across the street from the state hospital. And I used to see the psychiatric patients walking around on the grounds and they were talking to themselves and they were acting different. And my friends um, would pretend that they didn't see them. And when I was really young, I used to think, am I seeing something that they aren't seeing? And then I came to realize that um, they felt that there was something wrong with them, so they tried to sort of push it aside. And I was more curious. And in fact, when we played hide-and-seek, um, I always won because there was a patient who sat across the street on a bench who would always point out where people were hiding. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. And then next door to us, the superintendent of the state hospital lived, and the patients would be uh, raking the leaves. And um, And I just thought it was interesting that here's a group of people that other people kind of don't act as if they exist. And what's going on? What's different about them? Um, I mean, don't they have parents? Don't they have families? Why are they mm. locked up? And um, so I guess I was very curious about them. And it was also a time period where phenothiazines weren't um, quite available. They were just coming out in the 1950s. And what are phenothiazines? Uh, those are antipsychotic medications. Mm -hmm. So when I went to bed at night, my bedroom was on the side of the state hospital. And the big brown building um, was back a few uh, buildings from the street. Um, but at night, I could hear patients s sometimes scream at night. And I'd have my window open because it would be summer, let's say. Mm -hmm. And um, that's how I went to sleep. And I just thought everybody grew up that way. Um, so I became fascinated really early on about, you know, what is it about these people that makes them different? And do they have the same feelings? Um, are their thoughts different? Why are they acting in ways that um, other people don't, even little children sort of know certain ways to behave mm -hmm. and what's expected of them? And so I became curious about um, mental illness early. And so that brought you to studying psychology? Um, I 
wasn't a great student in high school. I, I think I'm an anomaly in that way. Um, I was exceedingly bored in high school, so I graduated in the bottom half of my class, but I wrote the president. At that point, we lived in Rhode Island, and I wrote the president of the university saying, I know I'm a late bloomer. Please take me, because they didn't have to take anyone that was in the bottom half of their mm. class. And I went to the University of Rhode Island, and I, I, I loved it. I mean, it was a whole new experience. Um, but um, I felt like I was outgrowing it fairly quickly, and so I decided to transfer in my sophomore year, and I chose Sarah Lawrence for creative writing, uh, BU for anthropology, and Wellesley College for psychology, because those were my interests. And I got into all three, hmm. and um, I decided to stay in the Boston area. Um, I had a, um, uh, a boyfriend who was playing in a rock group at the time, and <laughs> so, um, so I went to Wellesley and majored in psychology. Um, and I wrote my first term paper on um, schizophrenia uh, in my junior year. And again, going back to this interest in mental illness and what causes it and learning more about the symptoms um, and also realizing that it wasn't like other illnesses where you could say, okay, let's check, does the person have a fever? What are the other symptoms that would give you a clear diagnosis or a blood test? Um, these were disorders where people used a menu to basically classify mm -hmm. um, symptoms. And um, that's um, not so much the case in other disorders, uh, and it makes it very hard um, to really know that you have a homogeneous group. But even in cancer, I mean, you can have prostate cancer, uh, but it could be caused by um, a genetic influence or other things. Uh, but still, it seems a little more um, straightforward than neuropsychiatric disorders. Right. So, so talking about the the difficulty in diagnosing mental disorders or or the difference between mental disorders and other disorders, like you said, like cancer, where you have a tumor or something that you can see. With your appointment in radiology, you're looking at images. You're imaging the brain to try to figure out um, what the structure of the brain is telling you. How do you, um, how are, are you doing that in your research? That, that's an interesting question, and it brings us away from symptoms to trying to look at brain structure. And um, people have long suspected that there might be differences in the brain, and that goes back, you know, a century um, or more. Uh, but there weren't really good tools for looking at the brain. And so um, there's a, a, a famous um, person by the name of um, uh, Plum who said that... Uh, Schizophrenia is the graveyard of neuropathologists because if you spent your lifetime trying to figure out schizophrenia by looking at their postmodern brains, um, you were wasting your time. And I think there's um, a lot of truth to that, but science also evolves by the new methods mm. that you have in order to look more closely. And um, CT scans came in in the 1970s, and that allowed you to look at brain versus fluid. You couldn't mm -hmm. differentiate um, gray matter or white matter or the different structures in the brain. And then in the 1980s, magnetic resonance imaging came in. And so that allowed you to really look at um, gray matter and white matter um, and even start to begin to um, look at uh, tracing the ventricles, which is the fluid area in the brain that get larger, say, in Alzheimer's disease. Um, and people would take um, um, tools to measure um, by hand um, the 
intracranial cavity versus the ventricles in the brain to see the brain versus the fluid. Um, and that was still very primitive. Mm. Uh, but it took computer scientists really about 15 years to be able to take the voxel information that you have on the images and really start to differentiate brain tissue into gray matter, white matter, and cerebral spinal fluid. And so that was a huge, huge increase. And also you were going from one centimeter slices where you do 12 of them through the brain to 1.5 millimeter slices through the entire brain. So the the resolution became better. Um, there were more tools to use. And we were able in um, the early 90s, uh, we were able to basically state Yes, schizophrenia is a brain disorder, and some of the abnormalities included um, smaller superior temporal gyrus, which is in the area of the temporal lobe um, where um, things like auditory processing take place and might be related to things like auditory hallucinations. And we found that they were related to formal thought disorder. Um, and so um, this was a step forward in... Um, in understanding that this is a brain disorder, not like in the 1950s where uh, mothers were blamed for their child being schizophrenic. They were told, you know, well, they weren't told they were schizophrenogenic mothers, but that was the term that was used. So tell me more about that. They, they thought that um, something that the mother did caused or that it was a genetic? No, it was more, this is a time period where um, since there were no causes known, therefore it was okay. environmentally induced. It was the mother. It was the way the mother treated. Oh. It was cold um, and didn't um, relate well oh, to the okay. child. Um, and, I mean, that ended up, um, it can, you can imagine if you were a mother and you're doing everything, um, yeah. when in fact it had nothing to do with the way the mother was treating these children. Now, there are genetic um, predispositions for developing schizophrenia. It does run in families. It's also genetic. Um, and there were seminal studies that my mentor was involved in in Denmark looking at twins that were adopted um, away from home that were monozygotic versus mm -hmm. dizygotic twins or identical versus not identical, which makes them s similar to being siblings. Um, and the rates of schizophrenia were higher in the um, identical twins who were adopted away compared to the uh, non-identical twins, suggesting that uh, this is something that's biologically driven. Right. And with and so over the course of the 20th century with improvements in imaging, scientists, doctors were able to see that the brains of schizophrenic people looked different than people that were not schizophrenic. Pretty much. I mean, there's some inconsistent findings, but in general, um, I think the structural data is pretty clear that there are certain areas of the brain that tend to be um, uh, reduced in size compared to normal controls. Um, and functional MRI also came in um, where people looked at how the brain um, activity uh, responds to stimuli. And um, But early on, um, once we were able to look at the brain, people would look at, say, the hippocampus, um, particularly amygdala hippocampus in PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, because that... Um, uh, we found was actually smaller. And we also found in a, a study of um, Vietnam twins that those who um, ended up being exposed to combat and had smaller um, hippocampus, their monozygotic, their identical twin who wasn't exposed to combat um, also had a smaller 
um, hippocampus compared to others, suggesting that there may be a predisposition to some of this. Hmm. Um, now, it needs to be carried further. What does that mean? Where do we go from there? Um, but I think that being able to view the brain um, while people are alive is a huge step forward. And this really only became um, uh, something that people could do in the 1970s with CT, 1980s, early 80s, into um, I think our paper in the New England Journal was in 1992 that got a lot of attention because it was one of the first studies where you could actually not only just measure something like the amygdala hippocampal complex, um, hippocampus being involved in memory and amygdala being involved in, in emotion, uh, but you could create 3D structures of it and visualize it. And this is all because of the um, assistance and help of computer scientists in taking on the role of trying to really um, quantify um, and measure and visualize. And this has also been really important um, for doing neurosurgery. Mm -hmm. So um, later in my career, when I did work at in, in radiology um, at the Brigham, I had a mentor, um, Frank Yolez, who was a real visionary. He really wanted to develop non-invasive neurosurgery. What is computer science allowing researchers and clinicians to do now that's improving imaging of the brain? Basically, it's the post-processing that's important. Mm -hmm. So the images are there, and radiologists or neuroradiologists are trained to, say, look at the brain, um, but they're trained to pick out things like a tumor or something that's visually abnormal. Um, and that's what's important um, for a patient who's coming in, say, with a traumatic brain injury. Does that person need neurosurgery? Is there blood in the brain? Those things can be seen very quickly. But if you're looking at a disorder like um, schizophrenia, or you're looking at a disorder like mild traumatic brain injury, also known as concussion, those things don't show up. Most MRIs and most CTs don't tell you anything when you look at a mm, schizophrenic mm -hmm. brain. They might say something like, if it's a patient with schizophrenia, um, enlarged lateral ventricles within normal limits. You know, because their template is pretty large. Like yeah. they note that there's something large, but yeah, it's not clinically significant particularly. Um, so they're looking for very big differences. And what computer scientists can help us do is to extract information from the images that allow us to measure at a voxel level. Um, and also the first thing that we got help from computer scientists with was to be able to classify, looking at the signal for white matter and gray matter and CSF um, on those images. Um, to say this is the range for white matter, this is the range for gray matter, this is the range for CSF. And that sounds like a fairly simple thing to separate something into three classes of tissue, but it took them 15 years to do that. Um, so that was a big change. And people started looking at individual areas of the brain and sometimes relationships between areas of the brain. For example, the superior temporal gyrus that I talked about mm -hmm. before. And related or correlated in these patients with schizophrenia with the amygdala and hippocampal complex. And it was more on the left than on the right. But what people are doing now is they're looking at 
brain connections. The whole notion of connectivity is yeah. huge. And so um, if you look at the National Institute of Health, you can see the Human Connectome Projects. What are those about? And the first generation of those studies were to um, take the best data that we can get today and to collect data in the same way um, with the same uh, toolbox of behavioral measures um, along with the imaging measures and to tell us something about the human brain um, using diffusion imaging, which is a way of looking at the water in the brain, which I can talk about a little bit more, mm -hmm. using functional imaging, structural imaging. Um, and then the, the children of, of, those, of that first parent human connectome um, I'm PI, for example, of the human connectome for early psychosis. So what we're doing is trying to use the same methods and collect data on um, 400 subjects, 320 patients with early psychosis, um, and 80 with um, who are normal controls. And the reason that, that it's 80 and not larger is because we're going to be able to use data that's collected from the parent grants looking at controls. Um, but what we want is the small number of 80 in order to make sure that there are no within variance differences in the magnets that we're using, um, which is another big issue today as people start to realize that big data is, is important mm -hmm. um, and you want to collect as much information as you can, but you want to make sure that the data is harmonized or homogeneous and that you're not having a magnet in one city that's measuring something very different than in another okay. city. What's interesting for doing research for large samples is if you can do this automated, yeah. you're not confined to small samples. But at the end of the day, you want to be able to take what you learn from the large data um, and go back to the individual person. When I started out um, in... 1988 is when I got a um, career development award from NIMH. I really wanted to learn about the brain, so I wanted to get training, and that's why I came to the Brigham to work with Frank Ulez. Mm -hmm. um, and he hooked me up with Ron Kikinis, who came in as a postdoc, as I was. And um, so uh, what Ron set up was a pre-surgical planning for neurosurgery. What he wanted to do is to develop tools that could be used by neurosurgeons. And so... Um, my small group used the tools that they were developing, and I think there was maybe a couple of computer scientists at that point. Um, and our job was to point out, well, you've got um, the largest white matter area in the brain backwards. Uh, <laughs> you know, now, it doesn't matter when you look at it. If you think about it, a computer scientist looks at a bottle like this. It doesn't matter. Yeah. If they can measure it, what difference does the position make? Mm. Uh, but if you're doing neurosurgery, it really does make a difference. And um, and so some of the things that have been developed, which are really good for neuros for, for pre-surgical planning, is mm. um, we have someone in our lab right now who's developed a method, and we haven't talked much about diffusion imaging at this point, but it is a way yeah. of looking at water in the brain. Okay, and why is, and why is that important? Why is diffusion imaging and looking at the water in the brain important? Um, well, if you have a tumor in the brain, you have a lot of edema. And if you're going in to do neurosurgery, that edema might be covering up some areas of the brain that you don't want to cut into that aren't tumor, mm. but you can't really see it on the scan. Now, if you could see it ahead of time, you could plan your surgery a little bit better. And so, um, for example, Ofer Pasternak in our group has developed a method called free water. 
So um, diffusion imaging is based on looking at the directionality of water in the brain. And it's the principles are very simple. The physics and the math is very complicated in some <laughs> ways. But um, basically, if you drop water into um, a, a bowl of water, it, it disperses in all directions. Uh, but if you were to drop uh, ink onto a newspaper, it's not going to go in all directions. So it's not going to be a sphere. It's going to be restricted by the fiber, the fiber yeah, in yeah. the newspaper. And that's the same idea as looking at the brain. If you're in CSF, it disperses in all directions and it's a sphere. If it's in white matter, it's restricted in directions and so it's going to be bidirectional like a tube. Hmm. And the more restricted, the more likely you are in white matter. And um, what Ofer developed is a way of refining things even a little further. He can look at water that's closer to tissue and water that's free water. And if you can remove the free water, then um, you can look. Oh, okay. So then you just see the, the water that's next to the tissue. Instead of the water, um, you know, you're looking at a tumor and there's some water that's, you know, it looks like um, some swelling that's in the tissue, but mm. there's a lot of swelling outside. And then you remove that, the surgeon can actually see. And the, the virtue of what's been done for visualization is you can move things around and you can move parts of tissue out so you can get a better look from a different angle. Hmm. All of this is pre-surgical. Right. Um, so you can look and see, oh, uh, there's corpus callosum in there. I don't, that's the main connection between the right and left hemisphere. I don't want to touch that area. I'd like to stay away from that. I couldn't see that before. Because even with diffusion imaging, which should show white matter, there was so much edema in there, I couldn't see it. Now you remove it, and you can see that the white matter is somewhat damaged, uh, but you don't want to pull out the white matter that isn't tumor. And you also classify the tumor. It has a different signal intensity, so mm -hmm. it, it has a different label or a different color, and you can pull that out. Um, so that was all work that was done in the 1980s. Um, well, not the free water. The free right. water was done later. But the whole notion of segmenting um, the brain and algorithms was done early. And now it's gotten much more sophisticated. Mm -hmm. um, and so it helps with neurosurgery cases. Um, we're also hoping that it eventually will be able to develop some biomarkers. Um, like I know Alex Lin, who works with me on, on some of the um, uh, NFL studies yeah. that we're doing, um, he talks about having a biopsy of, of the brain without a non-invasive biopsy yeah, of the brain. Yeah. Um, and I think we have to think more about um, coming up with reliable measures that go beyond, particularly for psychiatric disorders where you're relying on symptoms that are not so reliable. Mm -hmm. um, the diagnoses, a lot of symptoms go across different disorders. Um, so it would be nice to come up with measures that are um, more reliable, that tell you something about a change in the brain, and then you cluster your patients based on some of these measures and see if it makes a difference. Because right now, you could have a clinical trial and assume that all your patients, say, with schizophrenia are the same, and um, your clinical trial fails because they aren't the same, but there's a small group of patients that maybe have um, attentional network problems that would respond to this new drug. Mm -hmm. um, but if you have everybody else in there, you're going to lose um, your ability to, to show that, hey, there's a subset of patients who really respond. Right. Let's go back a little bit to some of the discussion we had about 
Frank Jolas, your mentor. Also, Philip Holtzman was one of your mentors. Right, and, and Bob McCarley. Those are sort of the three main mentors I've had. Okay. Could you talk about how their teaching and working with them has influenced you in your career? This goes back to graduate school with Philip Holtzman, who I mentioned was a seminal um, a researcher in the field of schizophrenia. And I... Um, he came and gave graduate students in a pro-seminar talk, and one of the things he was talking about was um, eye tracking, that patients with schizophrenia track it differently, hmm. and um, th there's a kind of a jerking in their eyes. They don't track it exactly, um, and they developed then these digital ways of, of looking at it, and um, that this was somehow more related to the disease itself than something like auditory hallucinations mm -hmm. or delusions, which are... Really, I mean, that's the first thing that hits you if you sit down and talk with a very psychotic patient is they really talk differently. They're, um, they're telling you things that you know are not the case, that no, that person out there is not out to get you. Um, those stand out so hugely that um, I thought they've got to be related more to the disease than something like eye tracking. And the idea that something that you think has nothing to do with the disease could end up being related to the disease um, kind of fascinated me. And he also talked about the genetics of the disease in his den um, studies in Denmark of mm -hmm. the twins. Um, and he was also someone who was really very excited and passionate about science. And so that was contagious, really. And it was um, fun to listen to him and to talk with him. And, um, and I guess I became sort of even more interested in, in trying to understand schizophrenia using scientific methods than just observing, which had been my um, previous experience. And um, so he was also very um, caring, and he was very supportive of his um, trainees. And I felt really fortunate because that's not always the case. Um, I think it's really unfortunate when someone is with a mentor that doesn't have them on their radar, mm. uh, that isn't really helpful because um, so much of the first part of any scientist's career is the apprenticeship. It's hugely important. And the person that is your mentor has to um, really take an interest in the trainee. Uh, otherwise, it, it's not going to work. It doesn't matter how bright the trainee is. It's, it's if you know, if you don't have a good mentor, mm -hmm. um, it can really interfere with your career. So I felt really fortunate there. Uh, then Bob McCarley was really um, brilliant. I worked with him as a postdoc after Phil Holtzman. Mm -hmm. um, and that was my introduction to more uh, physiological measures, looking at event-related potentials, which is really looking at an EEG, but you're introducing the stimulation. So what was interesting there is patients with schizophrenia have trouble figuring out what's relevant and irrelevant. And what was really interesting is they had the same response as, as someone who is not schizophrenic, but it was reduced in magnitude. And why is that? And that was kind of, I was curious about that. And you could look at something in very short time, which I thought was fascinating, but I wanted to get closer to the brain mm -hmm. than um, measuring from the outside of the brain. And that was my introduction to Frank Yolez. Mm. And, um, my first meetings with Frank Yolez, um, I didn't know him at all, so I was walking in cold asking, will you be my mentor on a career award? I mean, why would he say yes? But I thought, I have nothing to lose. And that's the thing I would tell young people. Mm -hmm. When you have nothing to lose, kind of go for it. I mean, 
what's the worst that can happen? Someone says no. Um, and so I talked to him, and he said, oh, come back. And he was very interested. He wanted to know about me, how I thought. And this was all very nice. Um, and I came back to meet with him, and I met the same person that I had run into when I'd walked in before. And he said, oh, well, you're one of Frank's people. And I thought, oh, that's kind of nice. I, I would like to be thought of as one of Frank's people. And um, Frank basically told me that I was wasting my time, um, and my jaw kind of dropped. And I said, uh, well, will you still be my mentor? And he said, oh, of course, but I just want you to know you're wasting your time because if anything were to be found with imaging, it would have already been found in schizophrenia. And mm. so he was willing, though, to mentor so, me despite yeah. that. And I actually have thought a lot about um, mentor and mentee relationships. And I'm um, a PI on a T32 training grant. Okay. And um, I used to think that it didn't matter whether you liked the person or not. If they were brilliant, then that would be sufficient. Hmm. And over time, I've really figured out that um, this apprenticeship relationship is so important that you want to pick someone that's not just brilliant, but also um, has the time for you. You want to look and see that um, junior people are first author on a lot of papers, mm. that the person is generative, um, that if you hand in a paper, you're not going to wait five months before getting feedback. Mm -hmm. um, you really want to know that you're on that person's radar. Um, and that's critically important, picking out a mentor. And also the idea that you don't just have one mentor. Like you can have a scientific mentor. You can have someone that knows the politics of academia as a mentor. You um, want to have different mentors in your life. And um, senior people are actually pretty um, – my experience when I was a trainee was they were pretty open to – if you wanted to go to them to get help for putting in a career development award or something, they were usually pretty open and, and helpful. Um, and even talking um, to trainees in labs is, is a good way to go. But that critical period early on in one's career is so important that without that mentorship, um, hmm. you could get left behind and not end up doing what you really are hoping to do have a career. In. And the thing that a young person has to remember is their ideas are valid. They want to have a conversation. They don't want to say, okay, I want to do something that pleases my mentor. Right. That's never going to be satisfactory in the, in the end. It's, and it's so hard to get grant funding today and so hard to be a scientist that you have to have a passion that you want to follow. You may be incorrect, um, and at a certain point, you say, okay, this isn't working. Is there some other method I could use? Or, you know, how much are you married to it? Or this is not going to get funded right now by NIMH, let's say. Um, you put it on a back burner and say, okay, I'm going to focus on this other thing that I'm not as passionate about, but it's doable. And when I get funded, I'll also, I'll do that work, but I'll also see if I can't find other methods that will help me with this other area that I'm really pretty passionate about that isn't likely to get funding. And you want young people to feel that they don't have to just please their mentor. If they're only trying to please their mentor, how are they going to sustain a career? So, you know, I would advise people to look for a mentor where they can have a dialogue. And if the mentor, um, it, it's a two-way street. I mean, a trainee has to be able to say back, well, um, 
I'm not sure I, I agree with that I don't, or I don't follow it. Like, why do you think X? Um, it should be a dialogue, mm. and there shouldn't be um, concerns about that kind of interplay. Um, and I've had a trainee where I've had to say, but you gave up your idea too soon. That's not what I meant. You know, tell me why. You know, convince me. Do you have any other experience that you can relate um, in terms of, like, you know, picking a field or deciding where to go uh, for training or any other advice? Um, I, I think some of the most exciting areas have been where there are no guideposts. You're doing something that's pioneering and other people haven't done it. Um, and I don't think one should be afraid of doing that. But I think one has to, if you want to be an academic researcher, you also have to, like in baseball, look at the ball. What do you need to do? You need first author publications. You need grant funding. Um, but you also need to look at the whole picture. Like, what are you passionate about? What is it that you want to do? What are your questions? Um, what do you want to discover? Um, and you might not have all the answers, but what you, I think I would tell people is find a lab that you can go to that um, the work excites you that's being done there. Um, find a mentor who, um, however busy they are and they're an expert in the field and they travel, um, they have a reputation of being generative. Um, they have a number of junior people. And you have to be curious and you have to follow your nose, really. Dr. Shenton, thank you very much. This is a great conversation. Thank you for coming in. Next time on Think Research. And so he turned to me and he said, you know, if you want to help patients, uh, you're really going to need to simplify your approach. And so I started thinking from that moment onward, how can we really simplify what we're doing at every possible stage? Dr. Jeff Karp discusses his innovative approach to critical thinking and problem solving. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. research.